On this episode, I'm in the room with Pastor Scott Sauls discussing his new book, Jesus Outside the Lines. Welcome to In the Room, episode number 21. I'm Ryan Hughley, and I'm the founding and lead pastor of Redemption Bible Church just outside Chicago. You can find me at ryanhughley.com and also on Twitter and Instagram at, at @ryanhughley. that's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. If you're new to the podcast, the concept is pretty straightforward. I have a simple goal to bring you into the room for what I hope are interesting and helpful conversations with a diverse group of guests. I talk with pastors, professors, authors, and artists. Today, I'm in the room with Scott Sauls. He's the pastor of Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, and he's the author of a great new book called Jesus Outside the Lines, A Way Forward for Those Who Are Tired of Taking Sides. In our conversation, we discuss the impact Tim Keller has had on his ministry, why it's so hard for us to have healthy dialogue with those we differ with, and how we can follow Jesus while striving to be people of both grace and truth. Scott's a great thinker, and I think you're going to appreciate his insight on these issues. So come on in the room for my conversation with Scott Sauls. Scott, thanks so much uh, for being in the room. Really appreciate it. Excited about your new book, Jesus Outside the Lines. And I thought it'd be good to start for people who may not be familiar with you and your your first time author. So people that aren't familiar with your ministry, why don't you tell me a little bit about uh, your background, specifically where are you from originally? Sure. Uh, originally from the Southeast, from the Atlanta area, um, uh, but really uh, since that time from all over. Okay. So did you grow up in a Christian home? Did not. Okay. How'd you come to faith? I uh, came to faith initially. Well, at least I was, I was introduced to the gospel initially uh, late in high school uh, by a, a staff member for Campus Crusade for Christ. And uh, it, it, it really took, I guess, uh, in my life and in my heart uh, around my senior year of college. Okay. So the first... Uh like ministry aspect that I'm aware of with you was your time at Redeemer. Mm-hmm. Uh, was that the first church that you worked at or do you, did you have stuff that you were doing? Did you go to, I'm assuming you went to Bible college and seminary and I mean, you're Presbyterian. So you guys are pretty highly yeah. educated. Uh, so what was your trajectory uh, like? I went to a liberal, liberal arts university in the Southeast, uh, Furman university was a business major there. And then, um, short stint as a, a youth director in a church in the Southeast. And then, ended up at, uh, in, in St. Louis for seminary. And then, uh, after that, uh, my wife and I, uh, planted two churches over the course of 12 years, uh, wow. in Kansas, in Kansas city and in St. Louis. And then, uh, Redeemer came after St. Louis and we were, we were at Redeemer for five years. And now we've been in Nashville at Christ Presbyterian, uh, where I'm senior pastor for three and, God willing, we don't plan to make any more moves. Well, that's great. So tell me a little bit about uh, Christ Presbyterian in Nashville. Uh, It's a, um, it's a church that's about 30 to 35 years old. Okay. And uh, it's in a, it's in a season of, um, uh, I think real, uh, you know, excitement and renewal because of, of a convergence that's happening both uh, in our city and, and also in our church, the city of Nashville is, is, uh, swiftly, um, moving away from being what it has always been referred to as, as the buckle of the Bible belt and is becoming a lot more sort of progressive urbane, secular in, in its trajectory. A lot of industry here, very robust, you know, in education, healthcare, uh, business entrepreneurism, and of course, you know, the arts with music and theater and, and so on. 
Um, and, and, uh, and so, you know, you've got this sort of convergence between, you know, old Nashville and new Nashville and an actual, uh, excitement more so than a hostility between the two crowds and cultures. I think okay. there's a real embracing of, by and large, a real embracing of the newness that's coming to Nashville and the future leadership here. Um, Nashville's sort of been co-opted into the LA, New York uh, thing, and it's yeah. now sort of a triumvirate where, I mean, we have more New York City friends in Nashville now than we do in New York City, which is kind of stunning, the, yeah. just the migration. But but our church... Um, uh, it, it's sort of a microcosm of what's happening in Nashville. We have a lot of, you know, just really, uh, you know, genuine, uh, uh, you know, deeply spiritual people who really want to make a difference in the world, have a strong mercy and justice uh, sort of Im- impulse and instinct. We have a lot of culture influencers and culture makers in our community, and also a lot of a lot of the younger generation coming in too, and and really enjoying. Uh, sort of the leadership of those who are ahead of them in life, but also, um, you know, looking to become, um, you know, leaders and kingdom people in their various spheres. Yeah. Well, I think that the uh, subject matter you deal with in Jesus Outside the Lines is extremely necessary, uh, especially in our culture right now. And I'm just curious, you know, so much of the book is about dialoguing with those that we differ with and how to do that well and love and honor them. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what kind of impact being at Redeemer in your proximity to Keller, what, what impact did that have on the way that you think about these things? Um, yeah, Tim's impact started in my life, you know, a dozen years before we ever met. Um, you know, the first time we met was over the phone when he called me asking if I'd be interested in considering a role, uh, at Redeemer in New York. So that was my first actual personal contact with him. But, you know, I've, I've been influenced by Tim just from a distance, just through his writing, his works, his teaching, um, you know, for years. And so it was in my bloodstream before we ever got to New York, but really, really solidified in a lot of ways, just by being able to be sort of in the environment for five years too, which was a real privilege. Yeah. Well, the subtitle of the book is a way forward for those who are tired of taking sides. And so was that the inspiration for the book? Just your own fatigue with what, like, what is it that you saw in your church in maybe even in your own heart, uh, in culture at large that prompted you to feel like I need to write this book? Yeah, I think we've been, uh, really privileged to, to, to always be part of churches that, that I think resemble, the message of the book and what the book is trying to accomplish, uh, where my, you know, sort of, I don't know, uh, stirring has, you know, originated was with, um, you know, social media and just, just everything that's out there culturally, um, where it just seems like, um, there's this, this commitment, uh, out there to look for something, to, to actively look for something to be offended by and yep. then to tribalize with whoever agrees with you and to demonize um, and objectify people who see things differently and, and then start throwing grenades without ever having um, a, a relationship and without ever you know, sitting down and actually listening. And yeah. so a lot of caricature. I mean, Slate, Slate just recently came out with this piece called uh, 2014, The Year of Outrage. The, yeah, the, I saw you know, that. From righteous fury to faux indignation, everything that we got mad about in 2014, and they, they, you know, there's 11 essays about different things that people are just angry about. Emma Green in the Atlantic just came out with a piece called 
taming Christian outrage. Uh, and, you know, the things that she talks about in that essay are, are really the things that I think have been stirring in me for about two or three years. Okay. Well, I, I really appreciate it. The book uh, is very much at the heart of uh, what we're trying to do with this podcast. I really want to have conversations with people I both agree and disagree with rather than just having conversations about them, which is a lot of what I think is happening culturally. Um, but it's hard. And um, I wonder why, why do you think it's so hard for us to love and to honor and to converse with people that we disagree with? I think that we have uh, a lot of our identity wrapped up in uh, our positions on this or that. Um, we love being right. Yeah. And, uh, and we, uh, we, you know, there's something about the human heart that, 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 that has this visceral reaction to be ch being challenged and, and to being disagreed with. And so it's not just that we're offended by where other people are coming from. It, it's that we're offended that other people are, bothered by where we're coming from. And I think it, it traces all the way back to, you know, the scriptures where, um, you know, Jesus is addressing Pharisees in Luke chapter 18, and he speaks this parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And it, it, it's introduced with this, you know, to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous or, or who were very, very convinced that they were right and who looked down on others with contempt. Uh, Jesus told this parable. And I, I think that there's just something about the human heart that compels us if, if we're not rooted in, in the identity that Christ gives us um, to, to, to want to find an identity in a position and with a tribe that holds that position that can, can affirm us in that position and make us feel better about ourselves. And part of feeling better of our, uh, about ourselves is to you know, throw, throw grenades and caricatures at other people. Yeah. So what would you tell someone practically who is very much connecting with what you're saying mm. and, and realizing that, yeah, I really do think that my identity is in my positions and I'm trying to justify myself through that, but they're not certain how to rest in their identity in Christ. Any practical, I mean, you're a pastor. So how yeah. would you pastor someone that says, you know, how do I, how do I do that? How do I rest in my ultimate identity in Christ? Um, by being with him, uh, you know, it, it starts with, with just, um, you know, Christ rubs off on us just like any other, other person when we're in relationship with them. And, so, you know, that's one of the refrains we, we use at our church all the time. You know, if you want to be like Jesus, stop trying to be like Jesus and pouring all your energy into trying to be like Jesus and start being with him because, you know, the, the communicable attributes or the, the attributes of Jesus that pass on to us are a lot like a communicable virus. Uh, you, you catch a virus by breathing in the breath and drinking after and eating after somebody by intimacy. And so, being intimate with Christ and, and, and being surrounded by people who um, are on that same journey, um, which also includes people. It's very important, I think, even within the body of Christ to include in your, uh, in your circle within the body of Christ people who say, see things differently than you do on non-essential issues. Yeah. Um, so, you know, surrounding ourselves with the aroma of Christ, which I think, and I address this in one of the chapters in the book, makes the local church essential, uh, yeah. to that. And, and, and also just surrounding ourselves with people who will both challenge us and also come alongside us and, in, in, in considering the way of Jesus, yeah. um, and, and 
you know, it starts also with just recognizing that he didn't get outraged with us. Yeah. While we were still hostile toward him, that's when he died for us. And yeah. so it, it, it should make us among uh, the least offended and the least offensive people in the world to know that Christ chose not to take offense at us. Yeah. You just mentioned essentials <clears throat> and you talk a lot about essentials, non-essentials in the book. <clears throat> and, uh, and I want to ask about that because there are certain lines that need to be drawn within the Christian faith. Certain <clears throat> things like faith in Jesus as the only means of justification. Those are essentials to Christian life. But you quote Augustine who said that in non-essentials, we should have liberty. Mm -hmm. Um, and so how do you determine what essentials are? I would, I would like, if I hadn't thought about this issue, I would have a question about that because you, you hear people, everything is essential in most people's mind. Anything that they have a conviction about anything that's important to them is essential. So are there categories that we should be thinking in as Christians on like, this is what is essential. And these other things are secondary. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think, uh, you know, the, the way that I've treated that question just in my own context is, um, is, is by putting uh, the Apostles' Creed in front of our, our congregation on a regular basis. I think that if you want a, a really good summation of Christian essentials, it's right there in yeah. the Apostles' Creed, which, which um, um, you know, is, is hard to beat. It stood the test of time. It, it spans traditions and denominations and cultures uh, and so on. So I would say start with, you know, the Apostles or the Nicene Creed, uh, and, and, and really just, uh, you know, deeply committing ourselves to, to the notion that, that it is the scriptures that are the only uh, authoritative and infallible rule of faith and practice, yeah. uh, as the reformers said. And, 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 you know, the scriptures are abundantly clear on certain things, yep. and they, they give freedom <laughs> on other things, you know, one of which would be, you know, politics, which is a huge, you know, contested issue in our culture here in the West. You know, just even looking at, at Jesus's tribe yeah. of 12, you've got, you've got Simon, who's an anti-government zealot, and Matthew, who is a, a government employee, uh, a tax collector. And, it, you know, it's debatable. It's pure speculation. But John very well could be a pacifist because he's the only one who, for whatever reason, didn't get executed by Caesar's Rome yeah. uh, for not confessing that, G- that, that Caesar was Lord. And, yeah. and, and you've got all three of these, you know, Jesus, Jesus didn't tell them to go, you know, do your pro-government community over here that follows me and your pro, your anti-government community. He said, you come together and work it out. And the scriptures are constantly putting, you know, culturally hostile, um, you know, situations in the same room and, and saying, look, let the gospel, um, heal, uh, what's non-essential so that you can rally around the non-essential one Lord, one faith, one baptism. Hey, your chapter in the book on politics is interesting. And I was just having a conversation with someone about this just before we started. And, uh, I was telling them, I have a friend one time that I heard say, I just don't know how you can honestly be a Christian and be a Democrat. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so what would you say to that? Cause I, I would think that it rubbed me mm-hmm. a little wrong when I heard that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. I think that there's a lot of people that would hear that and be like, oh yeah, I totally agree with that. Um, yeah. so let's just, just talk, we don't have to go chapter by chapter, but on the sure. political end, um, uh, what do you say to, to people on that? Well, I, I would say this, I would say that you are swiftly going to make yourself irrelevant to the next generation of evangelical Christians, if that's your position, because 
the next political byline is going to be, I don't know how you can be a Christian and be a Republican. Yeah. Um, you know, because baby boomers are, are, you know, decidedly red state among evangelicals and millennials are, are, um, migrating very swiftly toward more of a blue state, um, you know, mentality and, and voting posture. So, uh, I would just say, be careful if, if you find yourself resonating and feeling more commonality with people who share your politics, but not your faith than you do with people who share your faith, but not your politics, that, that, that probably indicates that you have gotten, um, Caesar and the kingdom of God confused with one another. It's a great um, way to say that. So, um, so yeah, there's a, a little anecdote. If this was in St. Louis, uh, we had, um, you know, to your question, we had a guy come in, you know, to, to the office, just kind of laughing saying, you won't believe what happened in my small group. This was during a, a political and election season. And said there was a woman in my small group who, you know, we, we were just sharing things, you know, with each other that we were really excited about. And this woman said, well, you know, one thing I'm really excited about is we, we have, you know, the kind of church that, that non-Christians, um, you know, come, you know, to regularly and hear the gospel and they're in the environment and, and the, the case in point that she gave was that, that just this past Sunday, uh, I saw a car in the parking lot with a bunk, bumper sticker, you know, advocating for, for them, you know, to yeah, vote for yeah. them. And the, the thing was, the funny thing about this guy who was telling us about this story was that it was his bumper sticker, <laughs> you know? <laughs> nice. and, yeah. and so, so yeah, I'm okay. kind of rambling, but. No, 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 no. It's helpful. I don't know about you, but I hate long ads in the middle of a good podcast I'm enjoying, so I'm going to keep this short. I am unashamedly committed to getting this podcast into as many ears as possible, and for that, I need your help. iTunes is the primary place I drive the podcast, and your reviews help increase our visibility there. So do me a favor. If you're enjoying this episode, will you take 60 seconds, log on to iTunes, and leave a short review? That's it. Every review makes a huge impact. I promised I'd keep this short, so thanks for your support, and now back to the conversation. Uh, I, I do anticipate, and I'm sure you have too, a bit of an objection to your book, most likely the idea of it, um, rather than the, you know, the actual substance of it that goes something like, you know, you're just trying to water everything down so that nothing truly matters. Like what about the sort of book of Jude contend for the faith lines are important. What do you, how do you respond to that? I would say I am contending for the faith. I'm just gonna, I'm just going to, um, frustrate a different crowd. Than, than modern day culture warriors do. Yeah. Uh, I, if I, I'm an, I want to frustrate and draw criticism from the same people who criticize Jesus for being a glutton and a drunk because he was guilty in their eyes by association. Yeah. Uh, I want to draw criticism if I have to draw criticism um, from, from, from those who uh, are bothered by um, Jesus welcoming sinners and eating with them because I, I, I think if I'm, if I'm receiving that critique, uh, then, then it probably means that on some level I'm, I'm being faithful in my own discipleship. And so I would contend that, 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 that my book is an effort to contend very strongly for the faith that I see in, uh, in the gospels. Uh, you know, I would, uh, you know, just like, you know, you mentioned a few moments ago, John 14, six, I would affirm wholeheartedly, Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. No one comes to the father, but through him. Uh, but along with that and right behind that is to take sides with Jesus must mean 
that we are for everybody else. Yeah. Uh, because Jesus didn't just say, love your friends. Yep. He said, love your enemies. And that this is how people will know that you're mine, that you love one another. And remember, he's talking to this little tribe of people who are sociopolitically and economically uh, and dispositionally different than one another. He says, the world's going to know you're mine because of, not because of your uniformity, but because of your unity with one another uh, around me. And, 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 and they'll also know that you're mine. Uh, you know, Tim Keller's got a great quote about this. Uh, he says this, true tolerance is not abandoning our convictions. True tolerance is how our convictions lead us to treat people who disagree with us. So good. Uh, so I'll, I'll leave you with that. Yeah. I think it does contend for the faith. And, yeah. and, and if somebody disagrees with that, I'd, I'd love to have a, a discussion with them about it. Yeah. Well, many Christians <clears throat> seem to have this real fear that engagement at any level equals affirmation of everything that a person says or does or thinks. And so why, why can't we listen to and learn from people who may be strong where we're weak who, or, or simply have different convictions or vantage points without living in fear that our engagement equals affirmation of everything that person believes? Uh, you mean just the fear of sending mixed messages? Yeah. It just seems like there are a lot of, there are that too. I'll, we'll just pull this into our own, our own context as pastors. Mm -hmm. I know pastors who have, um, theological convictions that are different than let's say, let's say a reform, a reformed pastor, uh, loves the doctrines of grace, uh, who really struggles to learn from or refuses really to learn from a guy who's more seeker sensitive, uh, but really, really good at systems while this guy's really good at doctrine and probably a really good preacher, but doesn't know how to get a person connected for his life. Um, yeah. you know, there's things that we can just, what is it about? Like, why can't we do that better? Why can't we do that better? I, you know, I think you hit on it. I think a lot of it um, is fear. Um, you know, fear of, of, you know, my own waters being poisoned by, um, by somebody else's perspective that may be off base. And I think the simple solution to that is root yourself in the scripture. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, Paul, Paul was so deeply rooted in the truth that, 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 that he was, just very comfortable in going into any environment uh, and and starting wherever the people were that he was talking to. You know, in, in Acts thirteen and fourteen, goes in the synagogue and, and just speaks so much out of his mouth from the Old Testament scriptures. And then he goes in Acts seventeen, you know, to the Athenian secular intellectuals who have no biblical knowledge whatsoever, and 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 starts where they are. He doesn't quote a single text mm -hmm. from the Old Testament. Uh, but what he does do is he quotes their secular Epicurean and Stoic philosophers and poets from memory. Yeah. Uh, because Paul understands that all truth, all beauty, all wisdom, all goodness, regardless, regardless of the conduit, originates with God. And so Paul actually, you know, for those who are struggling and wrestling with moving toward people in this way, I would say just immerse yourself in Acts 17. Paul's grieved. He's even outraged by the idolatry that he sees, by the pluralism that he sees, as he should be. But he's not outraged against the Athenians. He's outraged for them. And so what he does is he starts. I mean, listen, he, you know, this is incredible. He's talking to idolaters. And the first thing he says to them is, men of Athens, I see that you're very religious. Yeah. You know, he, he finds something, anything, 
to, to, to be able to start not with a lecture or a scolding. I mean, how many of us know people who have the testimony, I came to Jesus because a Christian scolded me or yeah, lectured yeah. me about my ethics? I, I've been a pastor for 18 years. I've never met one. Right. Um, uh, but but, but what, what Paul does is he moves toward them in kindness and affirmation with trust building you know, statements of, of, I get you so much that I've memorized your own poets and philosophers, maybe even more than you have. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and he speaks to them about truth and beauty and meaning on their, their, their common points of agreement. And that's the platform from which he's then able to get into specifics about the gospel and specifics about how thinks that, how he thinks they're, they're in error and, and in peril actually. Yeah. So he's very bold, but all, but not, not before he's very tender with them. Yeah. You mentioned uh, tribalism earlier, and I think, you know, if, if we're just talking about, you know, within the church, whether it be networks or denominations or whatever they might be, tribes are inevitable to some extent. There's always been, people have always gathered together in tribes, but is there, are, do you think that tribes are a problem within the church as far as like our ability to connect mm-hmm. and to communicate with one another, but then also to our external witness in the world as well? Well, if, if tribes were a problem, then, 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 then we'd have to take issue with the way that the Lord structured is- Israel. Uh, True. So, uh, you know, I, having tribe, being part of a tribe, I think it's, it's just, I think inevitable. everybody needs to be part of a tribe. It is inevitable. It's the way that the community works. Tribalism uh, is where we get in trouble, where we start to, um, you know, assume that Pharisee posture of trusting in ourselves that we're right and, and looking down on others with contempt. So we got to be really careful about that and self-aware. Yeah. Well, um, I wonder how you see social media. You talked about that a little bit earlier. How do you mm-hmm. see that playing into this? Cause it's social media has certainly made it easier for us to fire off at the mouth from behind the safety of a keyboard. Mm-hmm. And I really wonder if not looking a person in the face that we might disagree, disagree with, if that's not imbil- uh, impeding our ability to talk to people and uh, there's a sense in which it feels kind of dehumanizing. You know, we don't actually see the person that we're, that we're talking to or about. And so I'm just curious about what, what effect do you think that social media is having on this? Uh, on on, on the, the whole subject of, of, yeah. of sort of tribalizing and, and... Yeah, conversation rather than criticism. Yeah. I, I think it's a, you know, I, I think that like anything... Um, I've, like anything good, I think social media is actually inherently a good thing. I mean, I, you know, anyone who uses it actively can probably testify to a number of people that they're they're actually more relationally connected to because of the existence of social media. So I, I think that that there's a lot of good uh, yeah. in the way that it connects the world, and it, it it's a platform to get ideas out there that are good and compelling. Um, I, I mean, I use it constantly for those purposes, but but yeah, I think that that that, that social media can be a coward's refuge, um, where, uh, you know, a a critical coward's refuge where, um, you know, it's just like pornography, really. Um, pornography is the objectification of somebody else. It's, it's the pursuit of a, a personal rush at someone else's expense without making a bit of a commitment to them. And, and, and I think that the potential exists there on social media for that, for sure. It, it invites that for those who are disposed that way. Oh. Well, one of the things that, um, 
One of the greatest statements I think about Jesus is in John 1 14, when John says that he was full of both grace and truth and mm. Christians as Christians, we tend to be sort of bent toward one or the other, maybe mm. a little bit more. Yeah. So truth people tend to love the lines and lack grace and grace people can play sort of fast and loose at times with lines. And so how do you, how do we follow Jesus and strive with Jesus to be both people of grace and truth? Yeah. Um, you know, grace without truth is a problem because it, it makes you a codependent enabler of some sort. Truth without grace is a problem because it makes you a bully uh, in somebody's life. It makes you a yeah. bully. And, and neither is congruent with being in line with the gospel. And, um, you know, Jesus came full of grace and truth. And uh, I think it really depends on who the person is in front of you. Uh, you know, Jesus, I mean, just take the, the public conversation about sexuality right now. Uh, I think we've got to start with Jesus. How did Jesus engage with sexual minorities? Uh, he, was, he was very consistent with, with, with people who did not hold or practice, hold to or practice the, you know, historic, you know, biblical Christian, you know, perspective of sex inside marriage between one man and one woman, um, you know, Jesus was pretty, he was very affirming toward the, the, the historic uh, teaching there uh, and spoke it himself in the Gospels. But, but he was also very, very um, tender with those who were sexual minorities. Um, did that mean that he was affirming their way of life? Well, I think John 8 gives us a pretty good, uh, you know, place where we see the answer to that. He, he says to the woman, you know, after, you know, telling everybody, you know, you, whoever among you is without sin, you be the first to cast a stone and all of them walk away. It's just Jesus and her. And he says, is no one condemned you? And she says, no one, sir. And he says, well, neither do I condemn you. Grace. Right. Now, now go leave your life of sin. Right. Tr- truth. truth. And I think the important thing for Christian people is to recognize the order in which Jesus did that. Yeah. Just like Paul in Acts 17, he starts with tenderness, grace, acceptance, affirmation that I value you. I value you before you believe as I do and live as I do. I value you whether you ever believe as I do or live as I do, because that's the way of Jesus. And, yeah. and, and um, you know, the only people that, that Jesus scolds is the scolders. Yeah. Those are the only people that you find Jesus scolding. Yeah. Is, is people who are prone to scold. Yeah, that's good. Well, what would you say to someone who's maybe not so much tired of tired of taking sides, but maybe afraid to take sides because of what people will think? You know, I think Mm -hmm. there are some who are prone to not want to draw lines because it's going to offend and blow back on them. So how would you, so maybe it's, it's more cowardice or fear. How would you encourage that person? I would encourage that person to, you know, at the risk of sounding self-serving and I don't want to, but, but read my book. Um, but before you read my book, read Tim Keller's reason for God. Um, I make a general practice just anytime before I tell anyone to read anything I've written to just read something Keller's written. Yeah. yeah. I just feel like that's a safe, that's a safe play. Yeah, but I think in this on this particular question, reading Reason for God is a good start. Reading C.S. Lewis's Mere Christianity sure. uh, is another one. Um, and if you have time after reading those two, read my book. But but yeah. what I'm trying to do in this book is to, is to not only 
argue against the, the culture of outrage and, and try to speak a prophetic word into the toxicity of that culture. But I'm also trying to set an example of, of in each of the chapters of how a conversation might be had about politics, about sexuality, about um, materialism and greed versus, you know, you know poverty and, and the call to live justly uh, and so on. Uh, I try to put an example out there and you'll find as you read the chapters that on most instances I take a position. Yeah. Uh, I don't take a position on politics. Um, but, but, but there's certain things like sexuality. I, I, I do make it clear what my affirmations and beliefs are on sexuality, uh, or on money and materialism and greed and poverty and justice and, and, hypocrisy and things like that, I come down, I think, pretty clearly in terms of what my beliefs are and convictions are on these things, but I attempt to do, do so in a way that, that demonstrates what bridge building might look like uh, in this conversation or that. And so I hope that will be one of the impacts that the book has is just to change the way the conversation is had. You just mentioned that oh. culture of outrage again. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious, do you, is there... <laughs> Have people always been this angry and we just have, you know, better mediums to make that public or is mm. there something going on right now in culture that is making people more like, why are we so angry right now? That's a great question. I mean, I'm, I'm not a sociologist. Um, you know, Christian Smith, uh, you know, the Notre Dame sociologist writes a lot of great stuff just mm-hmm. on analysis, particularly from you know, the vantage point of, of, of looking at sort of Christian community and, and how tribalism, you know, develops out of that. So he's a good person to read, but, um, gosh, I don't know. I mean, I mean, very possibly it's just because the platform is, is, is more easy to establish on the things that, that upset us than it used to be. Um, I wonder too, if the, if the, I wonder if the platforms, do fuel it as well. That I mean, I think that there's a sense in which I think that gossip, criticism, all of those things build on one another. It's like a fire. And I think the mediums in a sense throw fuel on them. And uh, so, you know, has, uh, I think we've always had something to be angry about, but there does seem like, because it's so easy for us to join the conversation in a sense that it sends to, tends to make it worse. So I don't know. I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll check that guy out, but I am curious about that. Um, well, in conclusion on your book, I, I wonder, um, what's, what's the one thing you really hope people walk away from the book understanding or internalizing? Cause there's a lot of great content, but if there's kind of an overarching big idea or principle that you help, hope people walk away with, what do you think that is? The overarching message is that Christ had every right to become outraged with humanity. And instead of becoming, instead of becoming outraged toward us, he absorbed the outrage of heaven toward sin and injustice and evil upon himself on the cross. And, and then, uh, you know, rose from the dead, uh, and, uh, everything that goes with that wonderful story and, and, and within the context of that wonderful story, uh, particularly those of us who affirm faith in Jesus, we need to understand 
we need to recognize that, that if the rich ruler walks away rejecting and resisting Jesus's message and Jesus' impulse is to look at the man and love him yeah. as, as the man walks away, uh, not as a man with new faith, but as, as a decidedly unbelieving man. And Jesus looks at him and loves him. And when Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss and, and Jesus says to him, friend, yeah. do what you've come here for. Um, and when he prays from the cross, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. That then Christians of all people should be the least, um, the least offended and the least offensive people in the world living inside that story. That's great. Well, it's an important book, such an important, timely topic. And so thanks for writing. It's great. I hope everybody picks it up. And uh, thanks for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks, Ryan. I appreciate it. It takes a lot of hard work to sift through our own presuppositions and personal opinions to truly get to the bottom of what really matters to God in his word. And the thing I appreciate about Jesus outside the lines is that Scott has labored to do that hard work. He leans into some of the most polarizing issues in our culture, and he helps us think clearly about them. So I'd really encourage you to click the link in the show notes and pick up a copy of Scott's new book. That's it for this episode, but don't forget you can connect with me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Ryan Hughley and also on the blog, ryanhugley.com. That's H-U-G-U-L-E-Y. We'll be back next week with episode number 22 in my conversation with Drew Dick. He's the editor of Leadership Magazine, a speaker, and the author of a great new book called Yawning at Tigers. Until then, it's an honor to learn with you. I love you, and thanks for listening.